All right, so turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. I will do our scripture reading. We're going through the book of 1 Peter. We find ourselves in chapter 5. I will read scripture and then we'll dismiss the kids. Chapter 5, 1 Peter. I'll have most of the verses up. Uh, there's Bibles in the back if you want and need a, a Bible. If you don't have one or a good translation, we'd love to give you a Bible. Bring, you take one home with you. They're in the back by the sound booth. And uh, take one home with you. Chapter 5 of 1 Peter, we are in the last chapter. If we walk it through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we are now in chapter 5, verse 5. But I think I'll read, since there's a few verses, I think I'll read all of uh, part of chapter 5. Let's go to chapter 5, verse 1. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Chapter 5, verse 5, our text for this morning. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. Children, you're dismissed to go. We are going into 1 Peter chapter 5. <laughs> Yay! It's good to see kids want to in, and go and enjoy their time uh, as they study together. And 1 Peter chapter 5. As we know, Peter wrote this letter. Timeless, precious letter. To us, well, to, the, to, the, to those who were being persecuted first 2,000 years ago in Asia Minor. If you remember, Peter is an eyewitness of the perfect life, the wonderful ministry, the brutal suffering and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? So, this is he who wrote this letter. Let me just bring everybody up to speed really quickly. Just a very short intro. We've got a lot to cover. Peter is writing this letter to several churches in Asia Minor. Alright? Where we would today would be known as Turkey. He's he, writing this letter because they're experiencing different forms of persecution, different forms of suffering. And at the beginning of the letter, Peter declares to them of God's great salvific work, which means the, the work of salvation of the one triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the fact that all Christians, believers in Christ, have dual citizenships. Okay, That yes, we're citizens of this world, but our ultimate and primary and final citizenship is in heaven. To the place when Christ returns with His eternal, future eternal kingdom. It is a hope, Peter writes, of certainty that should radically change our perspective, our behaviors, our attitudes here and now. 
Not just when we get there, but it should change us here and now that we are citizens of King Jesus under King Jesus' rule, and someday we will reign and rule with Him in a new future kingdom. Peter then instructs that our responsibilities, because of this fact that God has saved us and we are His ultimately citizenships in heaven, that our responsibilities are before God, what we need to do to live separate from sin and dedicated to Him, um, that we are to uh, be responsible concerning each other, government, he talks about our bosses, our spouses, and last week Peter spoke directly to the responsibility of the pastor elders of the church. This week Peter's going to speak to us, or to the rest of the church, including the pastor and elders, on the topic of humility. A subject, a topic that's difficult for a pastor, teacher, leader of the church to preach on. I mean, how does one exhort and encourage and kind of push you all to humility with the assumption that I am in leadership and I still need to remain humble, right? right? You have to be humble, yet if you think you're humble, you're not really humble. And if you're not humble, how can you presume and have authority over people? It's a, it's a, it's a humbling problem, right? <laughs> and so with humility, I'm going to approach the passage on humility with authority while trying to be humble. That's what I'm going to try to do. Okay? But here's our outline. For those of you who like to take notes, I know I do. If you don't, go to sleep for about two minutes and then you can come back with us. All right. First, with just two points. One is humble servants. Two subpoints. Humble servants are subject to their leaders. Submission. That's where we get our word submission. And subject to their Lord. Okay? Humble servants. Peter will also tell us that hum- we need to be humble soldiers. Because we're talking about marks of a humble Christian. So we need to be humble servants, subject to the leaders, subject to our Lord, and then humble soldiers, recognizing that there's an enemy out there, and also knowing that we need to resist the enemy. That's where we're going. Okay? First, look at verse 5. Humble servants, likewise, he says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Right? So subject... To the elders. The word likewise is the same one he used in chapter 3, verse 7. And what he's saying is, as I continue the topic of the church, church life. Remember, he said elders are to shepherd well. They are to exercise oversight, feeding, caring, loving, protecting the flock. We saw that last week. Not because they have to, but because they get to. Not for money, but for love. Not for uh, a personal gain but willingly, eagerly for God's glory and the good of the people. We looked at that last week. Kind of my job. Like the pastors are not the Lord of the church or the head of the church. The job is already taken. His name is Jesus. He's the senior pastor. He's the chief shepherd of the church. Right? And we are to, remember, if you remember last week, we are to exercise our authority by influence, not control, influence, and that our authority is not innate, but derived as we are under the authority of Christ. A man who will not submit to the authority of someone or to the authority of Christ will not be a good leader. Okay? So Peter writes, Likewise, the rest of you, this is how you ought to live, you who are younger, subject, that's that word, submit, to the elders. Now that should be familiar to you because the word submission is not an uncommon theme for Peter in his letter. We looked at that in chapter 2. He said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Subject yourself to the governing authorities. Chapter 2, verse 18, he says, subject yourself to your bosses, to your masses with respect. Not only those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unjust. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, wives, be subjective, submissive to your husband. 
so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Here he's addressing younger people in the church. Now, now some of you in your Bibles, if you have a New American Standard, you will see it says young man. ESV, NIV, I think, just says those who are younger. And the reason that some of you have the word man in your Bibles is because in this phrase, in the Greek, in the original language, there's a masculine plural noun that's used. So some commentators think he's talking only to men. Some will say, no, he's talking to everybody. Depends on the context. Some say, no, well, you know, we already spoke to the women, Jack, the 3, verse 1, be subject to your husbands. And some theologians or some commentaries say, no, he's speaking to this class of people, these younger men in the church, maybe like these rising stars. Um, you, know, you know how it is sometimes with young rising stars. They don't really want to submit to anybody. Uh, but I think Peter's talking to everyone in the church. Those who are younger, those who are not elders, pastors, spiritual leaders of the church, men and women that are young in the faith. Or, or young chrono- chronologically, as some of you know. Some of you can be young, 30 years old, 28, 30 years old, walking with Christ for a long time. And somebody could be 50 and only met Christ, you know, walking with Jesus for a year or two. Right? But he's writing to the younger. And if those that are, are young, particularly in chronological order, you know, I know you look at us older people and you think we're clueless. You know, anybody 40 and older doesn't have a clue what's going on. When you're 40, you'll look back and say, you know what? I really wasn't that that smart. Anyone who's 20 is clueless. I mean, that's the way it works. So be prepared, okay? (laughs) And you know it's true. I'm not really sure exactly. I think he's talking to the whole church. But one thing I do know, verse, the next verse in verse 6, he says, all of you, that means everyone, clothe yourself in humility. So that, that, that's for everyone. So you can't say, you know what, I'm older than the pastor chronologically and I could just be a rebellious jerk. Like that's, that's, that's not what Peter's saying. He's not saying, all right, let's ch- everybody show me your driver's license and we'll see who we're going to submit to. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, yeah, pastors and leaders of the church and the younger folks, the other people in the church ought to learn to submit to the leadership of the church. Now, I need to say this, maybe not, but I will. What's needed above all things, when it comes to submission to anything, or anyone, I should say, is humility. Is humility. We see Peter given an imperative, which is a command, not a suggestion that they are to submit to younger people. To, to, they are to submit to the elders, excuse me, of the church. Now, we talked about submission already on three different categories, and the same thing applies to submission to the leadership of the church. Okay? The purpose that Peter writes this is not to encourage obedience no matter what leaders say, for if we are to give, if the spiritual leaders of the church are to give false, uh, excuse me, you know, ungodly, unbiblical, immoral direction and, and violate God's law, violate the gospel, then we shouldn't follow. This verse also means that leaders are not exempt from the accountability before the congregation, for we are. The church belongs to Christ, not to pastors. We already said that the authority of the elders are derivative, not absolute. And we should live that out by serving and loving people. Yet those, Peter says, who are under leadership should be inclined to follow and submit to their leadership. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean you should not be able to come and talk about concerns that you have. You know, our church, fortunately, is very open and the pastor and elders make themselves available to anyone and to everyone at all times. But it does mean, so you could come and talk, but it does mean there shouldn't be a a, a rebellious 
resisting of the initiatives of leadership in the church, complaining about, you know, always complaining about the direction of the church. That's not healthy for a congregation. We are responsible and accountable to the community, but the congregation has a responsibility to have a spirit of humility and submission and obedience to the spiritual leaders of the church. Now, I know I'm talking about that and the hair is going up in the back of your neck. I am not going to give you Kool-Aid to drink. Um, okay, so we're not, I know there's abuse. We're not talking about that. Hebrews chapter 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So it's not just what ministry I should be involved in. I know I'm going I'm to ruffle some feathers, but I'm going to say it. Okay? And I've lived it. It's not so much where should I serve in the church will go submit to the leadership of the church. It's not only that. Guardians of your soul, God in His goodness and His love and His mercy for you has placed leadership over you to help you, to care for you, to love you, to, 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 to say things that might be hard and difficult, whether it be a community group leader who's shepherding a small flock or the pastor and elders of the church. It's not just that. It, it's, it's life. If, listen, if we are citizens of the kingdom and we belong to King Jesus and King Jesus has manifested himself in the church as his body, then all of life should flow out of that kingdom reality in your life. So it's not just what ministry, it's life. It's life. And God has placed people to, to love and to care for you. And, and there has to be a, 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 a spirit, a, an understanding that this is good, this is God. It's not innate authority. Pastors don't have innate authority. They have derivative authority under the Word of God. But God loves me enough to have people over me that love and care for me. Okay? I know there needs to be balance. I'm not going to say much more. Um, we could talk about it. If there's been some abuses in your life, we should talk about it. You know, if you're not really sure, and if you're rebellious, you should repent. Okay? It's that simple. I don't know how, you know me, I'm, I'm straight to the point. Peter goes on, clothe yourself, all of you, not just, not just submitting to leadership, just clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. Humility then becomes the oil which allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. Pride is the wrench thrown into the wheel that causes damage, right? That's what he's saying. Let, let me tell you what humility is and is not. Humility is not inferiority. That's not humility. It's a false sense of humility, right? I don't deserve grace. I'm such a failure, right? That's just a really another form of pride. Look at me. Really, it's just bringing you know, the focus upon me. Humility is not becoming, you know, worthless and walking around with your head down. We, as the church, sometimes confuse God's call to self-denial, pick up your cross, deny thyself, pick up your cross and follow me, with self-devaluing, self-depreciation. That's not humility. C.S. Lewis says, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less. You re- real humility says, I don't deserve the good and the grace of God in my life. I, I deserve, uh, I'm a sinner, I deserve wrath and hell, but here comes grace. God loves me, He cares about me. And to be humble, simply means, I have value, I have dignity and worth, I'm fully accepted, loved by God. And therefore, I will consider the welfare of others greater than my own. Because I'm secure in Christ, I think it was Neil Anderson, who said, humility is confidence properly placed. That's a great definition. Humility is confidence properly placed. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, 
Okay? Where do you get the grace? For by the grace given to me, by God, I say to everyone among you, among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Right? So as followers of Jesus, we choose the path of humility, not to diminish ourselves, but to discover our true selves by serving others through the love of Christ that he has for us. Humility is about attitude, putting others first. The desires of others, the needs of others are more worthy of attention than our own. And interesting, because Peter used the word clothe. In the original language, the word clothe is used of, of an apron of a servant who would, who would wrap themselves in an apron. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure, I'm not 100% sure, but I, I believe that Peter was thinking about the night that Jesus, and with his disciples, got up, wrapped himself in an apron, a servant's apron, and washed the disciples' feet as he girded himself. I want you to hear this about humility. When we are secure in the loving arms of Christ through the gospel, we don't need to take the front seat. We don't need to bask in the limelight. We can humbly serve others. How do you know? How do you know you're living a life of humility? Humility is not something that you can get. Right? It's not something that you're like, I am really humble now. Look at me. You know what I mean? It's just like, like humility is something that the church, you and I, brothers and sisters, have to continually work toward. Because as soon as we think we're humble, we disqualify ourselves. But here's some things that you can think about. Okay, I'm going to give you some things you can think about whether you're, you're living a life pursuing humility, right? A couple of questions. Number one. This is a good one. Is your life... You're not, please don't answer out loud. Is your life centered on you? Do you need to get your way all the time? Now, I suggest that you shouldn't even answer the question. Ask your spouse, your children your co-workers, your roommates, your college roommates, okay? Ask them. They'll give you the honest answer, right? Does your life center on you? Two, do you take criticism well? When those who try to give you constructive criticism and want to help you, do you think right away, you're a jerk, you don't even know what you're talking about? You know, that just immediately pops in, rather than, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Because prideful people, lack, those who lack humility, don't take criticism well. Right? Let a leader pull someone aside and share with them and talk with them about something they did or said that was wrong and this seemingly humble person turns into a cat looking for your eyes to scratch out. That's what happens. Okay? Three, are you considerate of others? Are you really, do you really consider what they're thinking, what they're going through? You know, what their needs are, what their perspectives are. Are you, are you caring about people? Are, are, you, are you considerate of others? Or are you just oblivious to the needs around you? That's a sign of pride, not humility. Number four, last one. Are you consistently relying on the grace of God? We'll look at that more. But humble people rely on God's grace. Are you reminded regularly, regularly as you preach the gospel to yourself, are you reminded regularly that you're a sinner saved by grace? And I don't mean just verbally saying that. Do you really recognize that you're a sinner saved by grace? Are, 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 you, are, are you constantly reminded before you speak that it's not for me, there goes 
you know, if not, not for, for, for the grace of God, there go I. Right? Are we humble people? They're quick to, re, to relate before they're quick to respond. Right? You know, humble, humble people would, would, would think through their own stuff before they're quick to respond to others. So humble people need to be subject to either clothing themselves with humility and they are to subject to themselves to, to the Lord as well. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Here's the thing. Humility can only survive. True humility can only survive under the presence of God. When God goes, humility goes. Why? Peter quotes Proverbs 3 and James 4. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You hear what he says? God actively opposes the proud. He works against them, but he gives grace to the humble. He works for them, giving them you know, grace to live for his glory, to endure persecution and suffering, in which he's talking about. That's the context. Pride is from Satan. And those who are proud, those who are self-centered, those who can't take criticism, those who are inconsiderate, those who are constantly relying upon their own strength, seek their own glory, trust in themselves just like the enemy, just like Satan. He says, but the humble trust in God. The humble give God glory. The humble gives the glory to God where it belongs. The humble look to serve God. And God delights, God delights in being trusted. Who are you trusting? It was Satan, according to Isaiah 14, who was full of pride, wanted to be his own God. Isaiah 14 says, I will ascend. This is ascribed to Satan. I will ascend to the heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. This is the enemy talking to his creator. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will, I will, I will. Then he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High God. You know what's so striking about this? Remember context. Peter's talking to a persecuted church that's under all kinds of suffering. I mean, they're being, they're being tortured for Christ, or, or at least being heavily persecuted. The torturing's coming soon. And Peter's got to take a moment out and say, let's talk about pride. And that's how ugly pride is. Even in the midst of surf, you know, who's going to go tortured first? You know, it's like there's pride going on among you. That's how ugly it is. C.S. Lewis called it spiritual cancer. In Mere Christianity, he writes, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. I love this statement. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. The kind of pride that he's talking about is, is the self-love. It's, it's the natural love for yourself. We're not talking about a sense of value, a sense of, of worth. That's good. But it becomes skewed when it becomes inwardly focused. It becomes deadly. The real question, folks, listen, the real question about pride and humility is not whether or not we should have a sense of value, but how it is established. In our culture, we are told that we are, to, we are the determining factor of our worth. We are told and taught that glory comes to those who aggressively make their own way in the world. Take pride in yourself. You need more self-esteem. If you remember the words of the great theologian Frank Sinatra who said, what... For what, man is, for what is man, what has he got? If not himself, then he is not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blow and did it. Yeah. 
Sinful pride loves to hold up a reflection in the mirror and idolize their self-worship. Now listen carefully. There is value in what we do, but what we do does not give us value. Self-worth, value, dignity, satisfaction, and purpose is ultimately connected not by what we do, but who we are as God's image bearers. Don't believe the lie. We'll talk about lies in a minute. From you have to find it in yourself. You're not finding it in yourself. You're finding it in your relationship with your Creator who made you and created you in the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God, with value, dignity, and worth by just being His creation. That's why the mentally retarded, the disabled, still have value, dignity, and worth even if they can't even do anything but breathe. Because they're created in the image and likeness of God, including the unborn child. Right? So... That's where it's connected. So we're talking about false pride. We're talking about self-worship. That's what he's talking about. That God opposes that kind of pride and gives grace to the humble. And look, look at verse 6. The antidote to pride, which leads to true humility, is about God and our identity and submission. And we see that in verse 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that in the proper time, He, not you, He may exalt you. This is what's called an anthropomorphic phrase where, where, where the Scripture uses like um, uh, human characteristics a, as a reflection of God who has arms and hands and, and you know, we know God is spirit. But what Peter is trying to teach and show these people, and the Jewish people understood this, is that God's mighty hand is overseeing them. And it's the same term that was used in the Old Testament when God delivered Israel out of Egypt by His mighty hand. By His mighty hand. And the image that, that Peter's using here emphasizes the omnipotent, all-powerful God who loves, cares, and provides even in the midst of persecution and suffering as He did Israel in Egypt. And just as God delivered Israel from Egypt, so He shall vindicate His people in Asia Minor, which He's writing to, who are being persecuted Humility is not the final goal, but God says that He in due time will exalt you. Peter was not promising vindication and exaltation in your time, in proper time. God never exalts anyone until He's ready and knows that you're ready. First the cross, then the crown. First the suffering, then the glory. How and when God exalts up to Him. Our suffering could be a whole lifetime. Exaltation may be when we leave this place and we stand before King Jesus. He alone knows our hearts. He alone knows how prideful we can be, that I can be. And when God's neglected, when He's taken out of the mix, the big old self takes His place. How can we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? I mean, how do we really do it? Look at verse 7. By the way, in the original language, verse 7 is a, is a continuation of the sentence. It's a participle phrase, meaning it's showing us how. So in other words, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time He may exalt you by, through, casting all your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. That's how. That's our responsibility. To cast, to throw something upon something. It was used in Luke when, the, when if you remember, the disciples came and they casted their, their cloaks upon the donkey so that Jesus can sit on it. They cast it. Or a fisherman who would, who would put bait in a hook and cast it. You cast our anxieties upon Him. It's like Peter saying, you know, drive carefully by putting both hands on the wheel. Or, or you should love and care for your neighbor by bringing them a meal. 
you need to cast your anxieties upon Him. Because, well, let me go back. You shall humble yourself under the mighty hand of God how by casting your anxieties upon Him. Now, if there's ever a time and a space or a place or a culture or a time that we could talk about anxiety, it is today. There's a lot of anxiety going on. I know that some anxiety can be physiological and psychological. I'm not denying that. Things chemical going on in your body, I, that is true. But what is also true is that sin and rebellion can cause anxiety. That's just true. That's just a fact. Now, the word anxiety, you might have in your Bible, worry. Matthew 6, Jesus talks about worrying. Anxiety It's the same word. It means to be torn in two different directions. And often when we experience anxiety, sinful, I'm talking about anxiety, it's rooted in two things. If you're taking notes. First thing is unknown future. We, are, we get anxious over the unknown future and we get anxious, number two, over the unchanged future. Unknown and unchanged future. It really comes down to control. It really does. Sinful anxiety has to do with control, has to do with the sovereignty and the providence of God. Now, I use that word. You've heard me talk about it when we went through the book of Genesis. Sovereignty and providence, okay? I'm not simply saying that because, you know, it's a $5 word. I'm not simply saying that so you can go home and intellectually, you know, contemplate, in, you know, sovereignty and providence of God. It has everyday application in your life. That's why we talk about it. That's why God mentions it, and that's why God put it in the Scripture. It has everyday practicality. Now, just in case you don't know, sovereignty... The sovereignty of God is the right and the power that God has to direct and oversee all things. Right? He governs, He reigns, He rules, He's sovereign over the world. That's sovereignty. He has the right to govern, He has the power to govern and direct and oversee all things. That's sovereignty. The providence of God is the working out of His sovereignty. It's God moving along in history in order to fulfill all of His intended Wise and holy purposes. All that God has planned before the foundation of the world will come to pass. That's His providence. Scripture. Sounds good, but we say Scripture. Proverbs 19. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Isaiah 46, 9. I am God and there's no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying... God speaking, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Psalm 115, our God is in the heaven. He does all that He pleases. God is sovereign. Does that mean we're not responsible for the stupid things that we do? We are. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Human responsibility and God's sovereignty run parallel through all of history and all of Scripture. God is sovereign. His purposes will be done. We are responsible for the sins and the things and the decisions we make. And you say, well, how can that be? I don't know. Ask him. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, okay? I don't understand it. That's why I'm not God. Job's already taken, okay? But we are responsible, and yet God is sovereign. Now, here's the thing. Anxiety is rooted in the unknown future. When we are unsure about the future, we have a tendency to play God. I said this before, and I'll say it again. Playing God is very exhausting. It is hard, really hard, and stressful to achieve your sovereign will over others to accomplish what you think should happen. Being God is really hard work. And when we're uncertain about the future and it's unknown to us, rather than 
rely upon God rather than trust in God, we stress out about the future. There's an old and corny but true saying. I've heard this a long time ago. It probably dates way before me. It says, we may not know, we may not know what the future holds, but we know Him who holds the future. We cannot control the universe. Anxiety happens when we hold on to our will and refuse to come under the mighty hand of God. He's sovereign, we're under His mighty hand. And we experience not only by the, by the uncertain future, but by the unchanged future, number two. And here's a shocker. Hold on. We don't have the right power authority to change others. Yet we stress out about the unchanged future when people don't do as we want them to do. How much anxiety do we, we, do we exhibit, do we hold on to because of other behaviors that we can't change them, we can't stop them? Bad decisions that people make that you love. Yes, you get hurt by that, there's brokenness about it, but the bottom line at the end of the day is we don't have control over other people. And we stress out about it. That's why I love the serenity prayer. I've said this before too. I just, I just saying the same thing till we get it. God grant me the serenity, the peace of Christ to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Lord, what I can't do anything about, what is beyond my ability and responsibility, let me rest in You. God, the things that I should repent from, let me repent. If the things I should act and take responsibility, let me bring You glory in my action, even if it's repentance of my sin. But Lord, give me the wisdom so that in everything, You're God, I'm not. There's peace in that. Humility is an act of faith. Trusting in God. Trusting God to direct our lives, to work out His purposes in His time. And why should we? Because He's sovereign? Yes. Because, I mean, that's true. But more, look what it says. Because He cares for you. His providences are good for you. His working out in your life is good for you. It literally means, for, he's, for you are His concern. Isn't that nice? We cast our anxieties upon the one who hears and cares and loves and hears our cries. That's Peter's word of encouragement as people walk by humility. I mean, why would anyone tell their anxieties to someone who doesn't care? Why would anybody tell their stresses and their concerns and their worries to someone who is indifferent and hateful? They wouldn't. But we are to give our anxieties to God, which makes perfect sense because He cares about us. He's not indifferent to you. He's not cruel toward you. He loves you. He's compassionate toward you. Compassion in your distress. In fact, this may be a shock too. He cares about you more than you care about you. That's crazy, but it's true. Listen, family, listen. You can, you can, we're going to get into doctrinal truth. You can have all the doctrinal truths up here. But if you're not casting your burdens, casting your cares upon Him, upon His sovereign control of the universe, His good providences in your life, anxiety will be your friend, not peace. Right? And it's important to see this. Peter is saying that giving in to anxiety is a case of pride. You say, well, giving in to anxiety, I can see, is a, is a case of, of lack of faith. But how is it prideful? Well, anxiety is a form of pride because when believers are filled with anxiety, they're convinced that they must solve their own problems themselves. Yes, yeah, a lack of faith. But it's because our faith is turned inward, not upon God who is all-powerful and sovereign. Right? When, when believers throw and cast their anxieties upon God, they are expressing their trust. Listen, 
their trust in His mighty hand, acknowledging that He is Lord and sovereign over all of life. Leonard Goblitz, a New Testament scholar from Munich, says, Affliction either drives one into the arms of God or severs one from God. Peter continues to say that we are to humbly acknowledge our need for God's help also by recognizing, point two, by recognizing and resisting Satan's temptation. Humble soldiers. Look at verse 8 with me. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Recognize there's an enemy. Peter used the word sober-minded. We saw that already twice in this, in this letter. It, it, it has a tendency about drunkenness, but it's used figuratively here to be rationally-minded, to, to calm and steady, uh, sound thinking. Be sound thinking. And then he says, be watchful, be alert, stay awake. These two commands are embedded in Peter's mind. He repeats them over and over again. Why? Because Peter knows. Peter, on the night that Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, on that night, Jesus said, watch and pray. And what did Peter do? He slept. He slept. Simon, Jesus said, are you awake? Are you asleep? Could you not watch? One hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And as a result, he denied Jesus three times. And remembering Jesus' tender rebuke, Peter says, look, I want something better for you. And he commands us, be sober-minded and watch and pray. Why? Verse 8, your adversary, the devil. The word Satan comes from adversary. The word devil means the accuser. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The enemy is at work. We had better recognize it. Recognize it. And Peter's betraying this, this, this enemy of ours as a, as a lion roaring, trying to devour his prey. The devil roars like a lion, uh, like a lion to induce fear in God's people. The roar of a lion would scatter a flock. We're talking about shepherding a flock. And the sheep, and they would be in panic. It's a great imagery that Peter uses as he talks about shepherding the flock. When a lion roars, he frightens, he scares. Nobody moves. Nobody moves. Both are on alert. Both are watchful. Look at the contrast between the enemy and God the Father in our passage. Right? God tenderly cares for His children, inviting them to cast His anxieties and worries on them, on Him because He loves and cares for us. God wants to protect the flock in their distress. The devil's aim is not to comfort believers, but to terrify them, to bring fear in their lives. He does not want to... Satan does not want to deliver them from fear, but to devour their faith. Right? He's not looking to deliver you, he's looking to devour you. And Peter says, you know, be vigilant, be on the alert. Now... We talk about Satan, we talk about demons, we talk about the enemy. There are two extremes, which we'll just mention quickly. One is, the one extreme is Satan does not exist. That there's no such thing as the enemy, there's no such thing as the devil. It reminds me of a song of Keith Green, if you're familiar with him, called No One Believes in Me Anymore. Right? My job keeps getting easier as time keeps slipping away. This is Satan talking. I can imitate the brightest light and make your night look just like day. I put truth in every lie. To tickle itching ears. You know I'm drawing people just like flies because flies, they like what they hear. He writes, have, they, have you heard that God is dead? I made that one up myself. He says they dabble in magic spells. They get their fortunes read. You know they heard the truth but turned away and followed me instead. This is Satan. I used to sneak around, but now they just open their doors. You know, no one's watching for my tricks because no one believes in me anymore. It doesn't exist. 
The other extreme is Satan did everything. Geraldine, you remember that? I showed that video. I just remembered just now because I would have showed it again. The devil made me do it, right? I'm dating. I was before me, just in case. I saw that because my parents were watching. All right, right. <laughs> okay, so that removes all responsibility from the person because it's all Satan's fault. He did it. We need a balance. We need a balance. The scripture reveals Satan to be real and true. Created by God as an angel, yet rebelled against God, took a third of his angels with him, and rebelled and turned their back on God. First creative order was beauty. He sinned, rebelled, became Satan and his demons. That's what the scriptures teach. In the New Testament, the Old Testament, they use personal pronouns such as I and we, clear indication of their personhood. The Bible talks about them making decisions. They have goals. They, they, they try to frighten people, deceive people. Their desire is to steal, kill, destroy, John 10. And their primary weapon, Satan's primary weapon, listen to me, family, is a lie. Okay? Because they don't hold to the truth. Satan, demons, our evil adversary, is not all-powerful. He is not omniscient. He doesn't know what you're thinking. He does not, and he is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. Only God is. And one of the biggest lies that Satan wants to throw at, his, at God's people is that our battle with him is all about power. It is not. Neil Anderson said it great. It's not a power encounter. It's a truth encounter. He's a defeated foe who runs his mouth, who's been done with and been had victory over through Jesus Christ. If he can get you to believe a lie, that's why Peter says, be sober-minded. Be on the alert. Think. Look. Because those who are focused on the truth of God's Word, resting in God's love, God's sovereignty, will resist the devil. Because his primary objective and his primary weapon is deceit. We need to prepare our minds with the Word of God. John eight thirty one. If you abide in my Word, Jesus said, you're my disciples, you will know the truth. Truth will set you free. John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He's talking about us, Christians, but that you keep them from the evil one. Father, keep them in the world in my presence, but sanctify them, He says. Keep them from evil and sanctify them. How? Very simply, in the truth, your word is truth. Ephesians 6, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Philippians 4, finally brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. The battle is in the mind. And we have to stand on the truth of the word of God. Now, some people say, you know, all that stuff in scripture, you know, it was back in ancient days and today we know better psychological, it's physiological, it has nothing to do with the enemy. Now, sometimes it is psychological and emotional. I, I'm, not de- I'm not denying that. Here's what I'm telling you. I'm going to say this carefully. I want you to hear me carefully. There's nowhere that the presence of God is not. There's nowhere where the Spirit of God is not. So whether it's primarily one or the other, I will tell you it's always spiritual. As children of God, we are spiritual beings and we are always, always, always commanded to put on the armor of God. Whether it's chemical, whatever it is, what happens is we divide people and we say it's only physical, it's only emotional, or it's only demonic, it's only satanic. Listen, we are a whole person, body, soul, and spirit, and we are to address it completely. That's all I'm saying, okay? We ought to look at 
the whole person when dealing with anxieties and depressions and other things. Could be one thing more than the other. I'm not going to get into that because I'm not a doctor and it takes testing and, 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 you know, but you are a spiritual being. As children of God, you've been born again by the Spirit of God and the Spirit dwells within you. There's no place where the Spirit cannot go, okay? And we are to take, the antidote is to take the truth of God that destroys strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, if you don't have a pencil, write that down. Uh, That's a great verse, 2 Corinthians 10, says that we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war against the flesh. Our weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. How? Taking every thought captive to the obedience to Christ. That's how we do it. That's how we do it. The other extreme. Satan's, Satan. Everything is Satan. I take no responsibility. James 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person has the ultimate responsibility, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Satan could do some of that. Bottom line, though, when you're lured and enticed by your own desire, then desire, when it's conceived, brings forth sin, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. See what James is saying? Yeah, you could say all that stuff, when the bottom line is it's your own sinful desires that are driving you to sin. Turn your back on God. Don't come under His mighty hand. Be your own God. You know, try to, try to be sovereign over the universe. Ultimately, it's your responsibility. And I will tell you, unlike unbelievers who are under the power of sin, the penalty of sin, Ephesians 2 says they're dead in their sins, they're following the course of the prince of this air, which is, which is uh, the enemy, Christians are under the authority of Christ and can now choose to be humble and submit under the hand of God and resist the devil. That's what he says. Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy and disarm his power over us. We, as Christians, have the responsibility to believe truth and not the lie. But if you want to believe a lie and you want to hear the voice of the enemy and you want to follow things that are unbiblical, unscriptural about yourself, God will never forgive you. That's not God. Look how dirty you are for what you did. That's not God. God doesn't love you. Look where you came from. That's not God. Stand on the Word of God. If if I confess my sins, He's faithful and just to forgive me of my sins, to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I am a child of the King. I belong to Him. I've been washed. I've been redeemed. All His providences are good in my life. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to sound like that guy in Texas that everything's supposed to be great. I'm simply saying, standing under the truth of the Word of God, declaring who you are in Christ. So when persecution and trials and strongholds come, they're going to come. But they won't destroy you. You'll listen to the voice of God. Jesus said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, and slander. Satan's scheme. He has a scheme. But you have final responsibility. To stand on the truth. With the opportunity to be sober-minded and alert. Firm on the Word of God. His goodness, His care for you. Okay? And you know what? This goes back to Garden, back to Genesis 1. The subtleties of Satan. Right? God comes to Adam and Eve, gives them the, His Word in a form of command. Don't eat of this tree, the certain fruit of the certain tree. Satan comes in the form of Satan, confronts even Adam, not with a threat, even with power, but with temptation. You will be like God. 
In that moment, Adam and Eve were presented with the opportunity to be sober-minded and alert, stand firm on the Word of God, His goodness, His care, His sovereignty, His provision for me. The devil's slithering around looking for someone to, to bite. But they were not alert, and subsequently they fell and sin entered the world. But in Christ, He has given us the authority. We, agree, we regain authority and the power to stand against the prowling lion, showing ourselves to be true and faithful people of God. We need to resist the enemy. The last part. Resist your enemy. Verse 9. Resist them firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. Now the word resist is not passive. It's active. Standing firm. It's not just faith in general. I'm just going to have faith. It's faith in the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, the redemption of Christ, the forgiveness of Jesus, my cleansing power of Christ, Christ's blood in my life. I belong to Him. No one can take that away from me. Greater is He that is in me than He that is in the world. That's the faith, standing firm on the faith of God. We're commanded in Scripture to guard our mind, to guard our heart, to use Scripture, to stand upon the truth. Matthew, let me just mention this quick, Matthew 4. Jesus is tempted by Satan. What does he do? He doesn't even get into a power encounter with him. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Satan comes back at him and says, look at the pinnacle. You know, when you throw yourself down, the angels will protect you. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Come on, I'll show you all the glories of the world. It could be yours if you just worship me. It is written. Be gone, Satan. It is written. Shall worship the Lord your God and Him only should you worship. Truth. Got to go. Christ won. The victory, the victory is ours. That, and that's what He does. Stand upon the Word of God. We need to stand up against Satan. But notice our text. Well, the one before it. Let me just show you here. One has to bow before God and then resist the devil. Verse 8. Okay, you got that? James says the same thing. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's twofold, family. You can't just resist the devil, you have to submit to God. Submit under the mighty hand of God. Submit. He's God, I'm not. His word's over me, I'm not over his word. He has authority over me. I'll submit to God and, and I will resist the devil in that order. Okay, in that order. Peter's warning, if not Satan was not true, would be, uh, make no sense to us. Okay? Let me wrap up the chapter. We'll call the band up in a minute. I want you to see this flow. Okay, family, give me one more minute and we'll, we'll sing to the glory of God. Pastors, he says, love, feed, care for, and protect the flock. Young folks, submit to your leaders. Everyone, continue to work in humility, looking to serve others above yourself. Don't hold on to your anxieties. Cast them on God by humbly submitting to Him who cares for you, who loves you, who is sovereign over the universe, working all things out in your life for His glory and your good. And as you do that, keep alert. Keep alert. Stay awake. The devil wants to to take you off your game. Don't allow his roar to frighten you, but stand firm in your faith through the Word of truth and the Word of God. And then he says, you know what? Believers everywhere are experiencing it. You're not alone. We'll pick that up next week. So let me close by this as the band comes up. Listen. Jesus was in the garden. I want you to catch this. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. Stressed so much so that drops of blood in his sweat are falling from his brow. No doubt coupled with the attacks of the enemy. He's, he's, he's experiencing great stress under the unchanged future of the cross. 
But rather than move forward in his stress and anxiety, he says to the Father, if it possible, let this cup pass from me. And he says, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He ultimately entrusted the unchanging future to the loving, sovereign, providential hand of his Father. You hear me? Humility is the confidence that the mighty hand of God is not over you to crush you, but to care for you because Jesus was crushed for you in your place on the cross of Christ. Because He was crushed for you, you can have grace. He, Jesus, is the ultimate humble one who is now the ultimate exalted one. Philippians 2. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you don't only look at the interest your own, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind which was in Christ, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, ultimate humility, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, it was time. God has highly super exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that on the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Family, Jesus is the most humble man that ever walked. He is the exalted reigning king, ruler of the universe. And He is the one who is saying to you, humble yourself. I went to the cross for you. I died for you. I rose for you. I am your good, loving Savior. Come to me. Cast your anxieties upon me because I care for you. I exhibited it on the cross and I care for you even now. If you've never trusted Christ, today is the day of your salvation. Turn your life to Jesus. Trust Him and Him alone. Some of you may be doing, dealing with issues of rebellion and pride. We need to confess it. As the band saying, we need to confess our, our, our pride. We need to confess and repent of our rebellion. Some of you have never maybe opened the door to, to the enemy's lies and you're listening to his voice and not the voice of God. Remember, the battle was fought and won on the cross. It is a matter of truth. Stand firm on the Word of God. And God will give you the strength to, to do that today. Father, thank you for your goodness to us, Father. We are humbled by how awesome you are and, and the work that you have accomplished for us in Jesus Christ in the gospel. Thank you for, for, for you yourself, the exalted sovereign ruler of the universe, became like one of us, humbled himself, took on flesh and blood without sin, lived a, a poor, arduous, difficult life, yet without sin, in order to, so that he can be crucified on our behalf, rising from the grave. Lord, how much humbler can that be? So we just thank you for that. We thank you for your love and we want to respond appropriate. Holy Spirit, pour yourself out among this place that we together may worship you under your mighty hand that you will be exalted and Father, you will uh, only give us what we can handle so that you get glory and we get joy. In Jesus' good name, amen.